Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. It's time for a gut check, literally. There's all those commercials on television these days talking about what to do if you feel bloated, if you have problems with constipation, diarrhea, and all sorts of things. So so what's normal, and what are the signs and symptoms of concern? If everything checks out, when is the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome given, and what does that mean? Is it all about what you eat, and can changes in your diet fix everything? Well, today, Dr. Tracy Murakami is in the studio. She's got some of the answers to these questions we all have, and sometimes might just be a little too shy to ask the doctor. As always, you can join our conversation. This includes you, too, at 941-3689. From our neighbor islands, toll-free 877-941-3689. Dr. Tracy, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thanks. thanks for having me. Well, welcome back. You did your medical school here. You did some training on the mainland. Your dad is here. You're back to the islands. We're happy to have you here, particularly bringing back the field of gastroenterology. There's a shortage nationwide. We need good GI docs, and we're so happy to have you here. Thanks. Now, let's talk a little bit about, before we talk about abnormal stuff, let's talk about normal stuff. You know, I mean, a lot of people say, well, it's normal for me to, you know, go to the bathroom every couple of days or go every day. Or if it's not every morning at 9 a.m., there's a problem. So what would what would the normal average time for digestion be? Let's just talk about like, so you ate breakfast and in your body and your stomach is digesting breakfast. How long does it take for food that we eat? to go through our GI tract, the whole tract? Well, it can be pretty variable, but um, I would say on average, you know, most people probably um, would take about 12 to maybe 24 hours to digest um, food that they had eaten. Uh, but it is considered normal up to have um, having a bowel movement maybe um, once every uh uh, five to seven days could even be considered um, within normal. So for everybody, it's different. For, for everyone, it's it's a little different. It, it kind of depends. Um, so when we think about like, so you got the esophagus, that's, you know, you eat stuff, you swallow it, it goes down that tube, it goes into your stomach. I've described for people the stomach is, you know, kind of, what would you describe the size as? Like smaller than a football um, yeah, smaller than a football could be like the size of a grapefruit, maybe. Okay, or, grapefruit. Um, grapefruit. All right. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now we've got lots and lots of intestines. So mm-hmm. we've got the small intestines and the large intestine. The large intestine mm-hmm. is otherwise called the colon. The small intestine is just the small intestine. Most of our digestion takes place probably in the stomach and small intestine. But like, how long are our small intestines? People would be blown away. Well, the small intestine is about 25 feet. 25 <laughs> feet. So just like, you know, stand up. Let's just say you're about five feet. Okay, five of you standing on your head is how long the tube is for your small intestine. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. And anything can go on in there. Kind of hard to reach. You can't really get a scope to go all the way through there. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty interesting. Um, but there's ways to image it, you know, yes. and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, mm-hmm. from the small intestine, things go into the colon. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about, you know, the appendix is sort of that little extra thing that is at the junction between your small intestine, your large intestine. you got the colon or large intestine, same thing. The right side, the, the middle or transverse, the left side, and then things exit. Mm-hmm. So how long is an average colon? 
I would say the average colon is probably about five feet. Um, five feet. Mm-hmm. So if you know somebody who's five <laughs> feet tall, from their feet to the tip of their head, that's how long the colon is. Really surprising to a lot of folks. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. 30 feet of intestines or so. People are just not really aware that there's that much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we said digestion takes maybe 12 hours, maybe longer than that. Depends. And some people have a regular routine with their diet and their bowels, and some people don't. When we talk about normal, is there a definition of normal, or is it for people what they've always done their whole life, that's probably their normal, and they really shouldn't compare themselves to somebody who has a different normal because that's not a comparison that is really helpful for them. Would that be true? Um, I would say that would be true. I mean, obviously, um, ideally, we would like patients to have about, you know, one bowel movement a day or a bowel movement every day. But for some people, it's going to be a little longer. Maybe they go once every three days. Um, I think the main thing is that if if someone feels like they are constipated or maybe not moving their bowels as frequently, that could be a sign that, you know, hey, maybe, you know, this is something that is a problem or maybe if they're moving their bowels too frequently and going maybe, you know, five, six, seven, ten times a day, that might be another issue too um, that needs to be evaluated. I would say if it interferes with, you know, maybe your quality of your life, um, then it's something that maybe, you know, you should you should consider getting evaluated for. So if you've always gone once a day and suddenly you're going once every five days, that's different for you, probably get it checked out. Right. If right. your whole life you've gone five times a day and you're still going five times a day and your life is fine and you've managed that, probably not serious. Probably. probably if it's, yeah, if it's probably. the way you've always been. Okay. Right, right. So let's talk about some of the danger signs of something that could go wrong in the mm-hmm. colon. And then we'll talk about some of the – because, you know, when we get to talk about irritable bowel syndrome – That's sort of a diagnosis almost of exclusion. You know, we've Mm -hmm. tried to exclude all the big bad things and based on the symptoms and based on the history and maybe based on an exam or some sort of procedure, we come to the conclusion, okay, it's it's nothing major. So let's talk about what are the major signs or symptoms of concern. You spent Mm -hmm. your weekend being called into the hospital because people had some of these major signs. So if we were to look at major problems for the colon and major symptoms, what would that be? So I would say blood in the stools. So blood. You see blood. A lot, Mm -hmm. a little, or any is trouble. Well, a lot can be hard to quantify. So I would say, um, you know, if, if you see more than, you know, a tablespoon um, and associated with any symptoms like lightheadedness, dizziness, fatigue, um, things like that. Um, you could be losing, you know, more blood than, than you think. Um, and it doesn't have to hurt. Sign. It could be right. painless and it's still get this checked out. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, another warning sign would be weight loss, unintentional weight loss in particular. So, you know, you're eating all your regular foods, mm-hmm. you're getting skinny, you just don't know why. And it could be a sign of something serious. Correct. Like what kinds of things could that be a sign of? Um, well, those could be a sign of uh, maybe malabsorption. Um, perhaps you you might have a, a 
allergy to certain food or uh, gluten uh, sensitivity um, that could be causing uh, the weight loss as well as maybe a cancer, maybe a malignancy. Sure, could be serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mother has, uh, she was diagnosed with a stage three colon cancer just this past December and she had, you know, she's been disabled for a while. So she had, you know, some symptoms, but she's over a certain age. And so we just, we didn't think it was anything to worry about. And boom, there you go on the right side, side of the colon where you can actually have no symptoms and still have a serious problem until there's some drastic problem. Mm -hmm. And then everybody knows. So, you know, always think that, you know, we don't want people rushing off thinking, I've got a problem, I have cancer, but don't be like, I've got a problem. Oh, that's never what it could be. Mm-hmm. Good idea to rule it out. So what are some other serious symptoms of the colon? And then we'll talk a little bit about screening and that sort of stuff. But what would be another symptom? So we've got blood, we've got weight loss. Anything else that would be concerning for the colon or small intestine? I would say iron deficiency anemia. Gotcha. So you're losing blood, you're anemic, we don't know why. And if it looks like Particularly if you're a guy. I mean, and the only reason I pick on men is because women who might have iron deficiency anemia, if they're of the age at which they're menstruating, that could be it too. So, you know, there's another possibility for women. But if you're a guy with an iron deficiency anemia, something is up. It's generally something you got to get checked out. Mm-hmm. Is there any level at which the anemia has to be? Um, I would say if, you know, there there's all, um, num- I guess, in terms of numbers, looking at your hemoglobin levels. Sure. But, you know, if, if I would say if your hemoglobin is maybe less than 10 or so, um, you know, that might be um, concerning. Um, sure, because for men on average, it's somewhere around like 13 to 15. Mm-hmm. For women, it should be around 12 to 14 or so. So, and that's kind of, that's a general comment because some labs use different different ratios for what they consider to be normal. Um, so if your hemoglobin drops, that's a problem. If your blood count or hemoglobin is a little bit on the low side and investigation reveals there's an iron issue, you can't just go take a bunch of iron and cure it. Something's caused that. You should probably get it checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, another symptom that might be concerning is if you have uh, nocturnal symptoms, meaning if you have uh, maybe bowel movements in the middle of the night that wake you up from sleep or abdominal pain uh, that occurs, that wakes you up in the middle of the night, that might be something um, for concern. What, what well. would cause that kind of stuff? Well, things like um, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, inflammation in the colon um, that can you know, cause, cause pain like that that might wake you up uh, in the middle of the night or uh, make you have the urgency to use the bathroom you know, in the middle of the night. Sure, because we always hear about people who say, I've got to go pee all night long. And that can be, I mean, unfortunate. It could be prostate for men. It could be bladder issues for women. But it's rare that you have somebody come in and say, I had to get up to move my bowels. Mm -hmm. That's unusual. So that would be a trigger of, hey, something something is going on. Mm -hmm. So those should be some of the big major symptoms. Let's talk about some of the common causes of these symptoms. And then as we do that, we'll probably talk about some of the... uh, some of the screening guidelines, which I know are a bit of a mystery to a lot of folks, it seems like every time we turn around, we change our screening guidelines. I don't know why we can't decide once and for all, but new medical evidence helps us out. So let's get back to the blood symptom. Now, it could be something serious. It could be a major problem, but it could also be like hemorrhoids. Mm-hmm. Would, would there be any way for an individual who was noticing blood to be able to determine the difference between, hey, it's just a hemorrhoid, nothing to worry about, versus, hey, this is a bigger deal? Well, one um, 
one way that we could see or visualize directly what's going on um, would be to do like a colonoscopy, um, which looks at the entire colon from the anus all the way to the end of the large intestine, or to do a flexible sigmoidoscopy, which looks at the rectum all the way at the up to the left colon. And so either of those methods might be able to directly visualize um, sort of what's going on uh, in the colon and help pinpoint, you know, is this just hemorrhoids or is this something else? Um, so you consider. could tell that because you're a gastroenterologist <laughs> and can do the procedures, but somebody at home probably couldn't know what's causing the blood right. and should get it checked out because how would they know they're not a gastroenterologist? That's that's true. Get it checked out. <laughs> or, you know, I've had people come see me in my office and I'm like, hello, that's a hemorrhoid, sir. And mm-hmm. if I know that's what it is, then, you know, your doctor might be able to tell you. doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to be just a gastroenterologist. But if you see your primary care provider, mm-hmm. they might be able to direct you a little bit. But don't think you can tell just when you're home because you probably can't. Right. All right. Uh, you know, the other thing that occurs to me when I talk about blood is diverticula. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't know what these are. Mm -hmm. What are diverticula and why do they cause bleeding? So diverticula are sort of weak areas in the colon that um, can sort of pouch or pooch out, um, so to speak, and create these little pouches in the large intestine. And these pouches can um, sometimes bleed because the little arteries that feed these pouches um, sometimes erode to the surface because these pouches can have a very weak uh, uh, wall, uh, th- very thin walled uh, pouches, and they can um, have blood vessels in them that can bleed. And um, and, and that's what's called diverticular bleeding. Um, and it can be quite alarming, quite a lot of blood loss. Um, and so um, usually patients will come into the emergency room ha- uh, with a story that, wow, you know, I've seen a lot of blood in the toilet and, you know, sometimes even have symptoms like lightheadedness, dizziness, um, fatigue. It can get kind of like serious. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that's a lot of bleeding. You got to keep an eye on for that. OK, but having a diverticular bleed doesn't necessarily mean there's an infection. Mm-hmm. It just means that there's bleeding there. Right. So diverticulitis is actually inflammation of these pouches. It's actually where a piece of stool gets stuck in that pouch and um, can become infected. And that can lead to fever, chills, abdominal pain. It's almost like you have a, a case of appendicitis. It's, it's very acute. Um, and so that's another reason also people should come to the hospital for that to get antibiotics and treatment. Um, sure. And it could be on your right side where the appendix is, but mm-hmm. more commonly it's on your left side. Correct. People, the appendix is on the right. <laughs> but if you have pain on the left and it feels really bad, it could be these pouches, these diverticuli. And if you have those, is there ever an indication where you'd actually have to have surgery to have them out? Um, yes, as, as, as possible. Um, sometimes it can just be treated with antibiotics alone, but a lot of times if, if there is a question of an abscess or perforation, uh, which is when there's a hole that develops in the colon, then, then surgery might be the way to treat. Uh, and they can just uh, cut out that part of the colon with the pouches in it. Um, and then to reattach. Treat it and reattach, sure. correct. Because you don't want a hole from your colon. Yes. <laughs> because then poo gets out. And it gets out into the rest of your abdomen or your gut. And that is not a good thing at all. Okay, so holes, bad, bad news. We don't want to do that. If people have um, diverticular infections or bleeds, should they always do a follow-up colon test after that? 
Well, there is a theory that um, sometimes in a case of uh, diverticulitis can be masking underlying uh, mass there in the colon. So the general recommendation is is to do a colonoscopy after an acute episode of diverticulitis. But usually we have to wait about uh, two months or so just let to let it heal, cool sure. down, uh, let the colon heal itself first. What if you've had a colonoscopy within the last year and the diverticulitis, these pouches were seen, and now you get an infection. Do you have to do a colonoscopy again if you've done one within that short period of time? No. So it really just depends on the situation. Right. It depends on the situation. And your own and whether, personal history. Right. And whether you've had one before or okay. not. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the weight loss symptom. We mentioned that could be malabsorption. You mentioned gluten sensitivity. There's celiac disease, which is a little bit more than just sensitivity to gluten. It's It's an actual intestinal thing. So let's talk about malabsorption because malabsorption and celiac kind of go together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are not absorbing the nutrients of the food they eat, mm-hmm. then essentially what could happen is that no matter what they eat, they don't gain weight, they don't get any nutrition, so their body starts to lose weight. Are these kind of syndromes common? I would say they're not uh, very common. Um, usually we see um, celiac uh, disease or gluten um, allergy. It's basically an allergy to wheat. Um, usually we see that in patients who are of northern European descent. Um, so not that common in Hawaii, I guess, with our population. Um, but, um, um, yeah, I would say that they're not uh, that common, but we do see them every so often. And sometimes you can also have malabsorption if you have like an intestinal infection, say, for example, like a parasite, um, and that could be causing you uh, to get uh, malabsorption. Um, so there's a couple of things. When we talk about, you know, a lot of folks say they feel better eating gluten-free, but they don't necessarily have celiac disease. Mm-hmm. They've been tested for celiac. They don't have the antibodies. But mm-hmm. they still feel better when they don't eat gluten. My answer to them is then don't eat gluten. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that they should be doing if that's the case? Um, well, we know that uh, people who might be sensitive to certain foods like gluten might also be sensitive uh, to other foods, for example, uh, lactose intolerance. And um, so I think, um, you know, it's uh, not necessarily, um, uh, I guess, a, a gluten sensitivity itself. Um, there, it, there should be, they should be tested though for, for celiac, it, you know, test uh, the serology, the blood test, um, probably also um, get an upper endoscopy with small bowel biopsies to make sure that they don't have the condition. But um, there are some people who seem to feel better on a gluten-free diet. And I just um, tell them, well, feel good about it. Find mm-hmm. your gluten-free stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not at risk for having any nutritional deficiency, right. and if you eat regular foods in the United States, you're really not at risk for a nutritional deficiency, um, or you shouldn't be. So even if you don't have celiac but you're gluten sensitive, go for it. Get your gluten-free stuff. If you mm-hmm. feel better, go with how your body feels. Right. All right. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Murakami. She's a board-certified gastroenterologist, part of the Queen's Medical Center gastroenterology service team. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the other things that go on in the colon. We'll talk a little bit about colon cancer screening, and then we'll talk a little bit about irritable bowel disease. Those commercials I keep seeing on TV, it makes it seem like there's so many new medications for these conditions. 
Is that the best way to treat it? We'll find out in just a few moments. Now, you can always join us at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Life was too intimate. He would lie awake, eager, expectant. (sighs) Expecting what? Unanswered Questions. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin big band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat every Wednesday night from 8 to 10 here on HBR2. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you then. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Tracy Murakami. She's a gastroenterology specialist, and we are talking about all things colon and gut today. We've talked a little bit about people who have diverticula, and we've talked a little bit about worrisome signs, weight loss and anemia and pain, and we're going to talk some more about those things. Now, if you've had some concerns about your colon, if you've been told, hey, maybe you have this irritable bowel syndrome, or you were wondering what it is. We're going to get to that in a few moments, but you can also share your question with us, be part of our conversation. 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about malabsorption and celiac and people who have issues with gluten and just, you know, if you feel better not eating it, just don't eat it. That sounds great. I hope you can find a lot of selections. You know, there's quite a few restaurants have actually started to develop. Like, I know at CPK, you can get gluten-free pizza, which, you know, I just love pizza. But they even have all these other options now. Now, one of the things that about the symptom of, of weight loss we have to talk about is cancer. And, you know, there are some new studies that suggest that colon screening really can be the most effective way to identify colon cancer when it's early. And I dare say, if you catch colon cancer when it's like at a tiny little polyp stage, it's curative by just removing that polyp. Why are people, when you see folks, why do you hear that people are so worried about doing the colon test? Because you do the colonoscopy. You perform it. When you counsel people about it, what do they say are their biggest fears? I think a lot of people are scared about the bowel preparation because they've heard that that is the hardest part. And um, really, why won't you make it easier? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's um, I would talk to your um, doctor about different bowel preparations, because I think the thing that scares a lot of people is the volume of the amount of uh, bowel prep that they need to drink. And nowadays, there are other options of lower volume preps uh, to drink. And really doing one day of clear liquid diet isn't too bad. I mean, it's it's not like you're starving. You can have jello, you can have, you know, um, chicken broth. So it's not um, that you really can't eat 
anything the day before the procedure. Um, and some people actually do a low f- a low residue or low um, low residue diet before uh, their colonoscopy. Um, well, like well. so, if you think. I'm going to do a colonoscopy. I have to do the prep tomorrow. Let me load up on my food tonight. That is such a bad idea. That's a very bad idea because when we we can we can tell when you're lying. So we can tell when there's food still in the colon and that You that, can physically <laughs> see it. Yeah. And that will make for a poorer study because then we won't be able to look at the entire mucosa. We could miss small polyps, we could miss flat polyps. Um, and so you really want to make sure you get cleaned out as much as possible. Uh, before your colonoscopy. So, you know, when I have to think, now I'm not, now we'll talk about the ages because 50 is one of those ages when you should start unless you have a family history of colon cancer, 50 is the general age. So I haven't hit 50 yet. But I got to tell you, I have heard about this colon prep thing. And I know a lot of people out there have done this colon prep thing. And I would do a clear liquid diet for several days just to avoid the volume of the colon prep. And that just makes me a bad patient, which is not a good thing to admit. But, you know, when you think about how fun that colon prep is going to be, it's going to be a lot less fun if you've eaten that pizza the night before. So the clear liquid, the low residue, it really does help. But it makes a difference because if you can't see stuff, you can't you can't check it out and make sure it looks normal. Right. And you have to repeat your colonoscopy sooner if you don't have a clean colon. Right. That's motivation for everyone. (laughs) All right. We got a couple of callers on the line. We have Jan on the phone from IAEA. Jan, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much. What can we do for you today? Well, I got rushed into emergency on Wednesday because I was bleeding from the rectum and lost enough blood where I actually had a transfusion after the third day. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But, you know, went through some of the prep, and you're right. I know I can't drink a gallon of fluids in two hours, and it's just awful to be told you have to. But anyway, I did cease the bleeding, and I did have the colonoscopy, and of course it came out good, so thank God for that. But when they tell you they haven't found anything, it's a bit of concern. I mean, I'd rather know that they found something, snipped it, or cauterized it. I mean, is that normal after what I went through? That's a really good question, Jen, because sometimes you go to do this procedure and you're like, you have to have found something. There was so much blood. There must have been something. And, you know, from the medical perspective, doctors were often so excited to be like, there's no tumor. We're so happy. And you're like, so then what was it? So what's going on? And it's frustrating for individuals For patients who come in and they want to know, so how come you didn't find anything? Trust me, that's good news, but I do understand your frustration. And Dr. Tracy, a bunch of things could do that, yeah? Correct. Um, So a lot of times with lower GI bleeding, um, it can... uh, sometimes stop on its own, especially if it was from uh, diverticular uh, diverticular bleed. And sometimes we don't always see the blood coming from the diverticular. A lot of times it has already stopped by the time we get in there and take a look. Um, so it's not unusual for uh, the bleeding to have stopped by the time you do the colonoscopy exam. I mean, hopefully we can catch it in time, but we don't always catch it in time to, to be able to see exactly where it came from. And sometimes we never really know what the cause of the bleeding was, but, um, you know, we just monitor your blood counts and make sure that it's stable afterwards and make sure you're not bleeding anymore. And unfortunately, if you keep having the episodes, Mm -hmm. then the likelihood of us finding something is greater, but then you have to keep having the episodes. Right. So, you know, hopefully it was a one-time thing. 
what you're saying, Dr. Tracy, is there are explanations for it. Just because we don't see it, we kind of can guess what it might have been. And as long as it doesn't come back, you're probably okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Jen, I hope that helps you out. And uh, the negative result. Remember, we often are there to look for bad stuff. If we get stumped, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's kind of good that there was no major tumor um, or something serious that would require a big surgery. So respectfully, Jen, I know you recognize that. And it is okay that your doctors didn't find anything. And hopefully it'll never happen again and you'll be, you'll be good for the rest of your life. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We have Aloy from Maui. Welcome to The Body Show. Hey, yes, good, good evening. Good evening. What can we do for you today? Uh, so <clears throat> my question is in regards to H. pylori. I know that, you know, I guess it's the ubiquitous uh, bacteria, but only certain types make it pathogenic. But <clears throat> how how do you know once you have the bacteria and you did you did the, the course of the, you know, the H2 blockers and the antihistamine and the antibiotics that it is not something that's going to reoccur or that you're going to have to take the PPIs constantly. That's a great question, Aloy. Dr. Murakami? Yeah, so um, the H. pylori um, infection, we can actually test for it to make sure that it's eradicated. So your doctor, your primary care doctor or your GI doctor could order a stool antigen test to check for the presence of the bacteria to see if it's gone after a course of antibiotics. Or you could do what's called a urea breath test, and that actually can check for the presence of the bacteria in your breath. So either either of these two more non-invasive tests can check for the presence of bacteria. You don't necessarily need an upper endoscopy with biopsies of your stomach to see if the bacteria is there in your stomach. And it's not unusual for uh, H. pylori to require several treatments of antibiotics, not just one course, but but perhaps two, even three courses of different antibiotics to, to make sure that the bacteria infection is eradicated. So, you know, I've got a question. If you take it, the antibiotic course, the H. pylori, and then let's say you let's say Aloy did this stool antigen and he still had the antigen present, mm-hmm. and so he did it again. Would you, if you had no symptoms at all, let's say your stomach feels back to normal, do you have to do the confirmatory test to see that the bacteria is gone? Um, well, I think that you know, as as why we think treating H. pylori is important is because it can lead to problems in the future. It can lead to gastritis. It can even lead to um, ulcers, ulcers in the stomach. It can even lead to um, stomach cancer. And so, you know, if we do find it, I like to treat it and and do the confirmatory test to make sure that it's eradicated in my patients, just because I like to be uh, sure that it was treated um, adequately. But you know, people can live with H. pylori their whole lives and not have symptoms. That is correct. Um, and it's a very common worldwide uh, infection. So, um, you know, do we have to treat everyone? I think the debate is, is still on about that. But because we know that it can lead to these problems down the line, um, you know, I think it's, it's good to be kind of proactive and try to treat it um, if we can. And, you know, I, I love the story of H. pylori, the historical story of the gastroenterologist who swore that this bacteria caused a stomach problem. Mm-hmm. So they infected themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you got to give these guys some credit because everybody thought they were a little off in crazy land that they thought some bacteria caused stomach problems. And so they wanted to prove it 
So they infected themselves Mm -hmm. and then treated themselves and proved that it was associated. So kudos to you, H. pylori man out there who had figured this out. I think it was guys because I remember watching it on 2020 when I was really young. So, you know, it must have been in like the 80s or something that this all took place. Yes. And Mm -hmm. and I just remember watching it going, wow, those guys infected. I mean, that was just pretty wild at that time. So, you know, now it's transformed how we treat H. pylori. Now, is it something you should, if you have no stomach symptoms and you're just going for a routine visit, is there any, is there ever a reason to to screen for H. pylori? Or is it really just if you're in there doing an endoscopy, you have symptoms, you take a biopsy, you find the H. pylori, then you treat it? Right. So usually you would only test someone if they have symptoms. So the symptoms might be uh, dyspepsia. So some stomach discomfort, maybe some stomach pain. Like Um, heartburn, reflux, you got a problem. Then you treat it. Mm -hmm. Just because you've been exposed to it doesn't mean you have to treat it. Right. All right. Okay. I think I've got it right, Eloy. And I hope you can eradicate the H. pylori and make sure that you're all good. We have Ron on the phone from Kauai. Ron, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. I don't mean to be redundant about it, but I'm calling about H. pylori myself. That's okay. Um, We learn more from repetition. Okay. Um, I had been uh, diagnosed, I guess, from a blood sample that I had antibodies for the H. pylori. Um, I had tried to use probiotics before that to eliminate it. And I, I wasn't uh, getting better quick enough for me. I'm trying to work at the same time. So um, anyway, I decided to take the antibiotics. And they were, I don't know, it was uh, difficult for me to get through them. I didn't work the whole time I was taking them. Uh, and now that I'm through them, it doesn't feel like anything has really happened. And they're telling me to go and um, see if I still have the antibodies in my system. But... I don't know. It doesn't seem to be conclusive in any sort of way. Right now, um, after I took the antibiotics, I'm getting pain that I think might be in my gallbladder. It's on the left side, just underneath my rib cage on the bottom there. And um, I read a little bit about it on the Internet, and I'm concerned that it's not the H. pylori and that I may have other stomach um, or gastrointestinal uh, complications happening. Well, a couple of good things to mention, Ron. The first yeah. one is, Dr. Tracy, I saw you doing a little left and right thing. Gallbladder's on the other side. Is on the left-hand side. Gallbladder's on the right-hand side. Oh, okay. So you can cross that off the list if you're not having pain. We can tell you that now. On okay. the left side, is sometimes people have the stomach pain on that side. You know, your spleen kind of sneaks underneath there. Most people don't feel spleen pain. But, you know, Dr. Murakami, what I want to do is I want you to go ahead and tell us the difference between a blood test for antibodies and a stool antigen test. Because I think sometimes people mistake this because antibodies, once they're in your body, are going to be there hopefully to protect you forever. Mm-hmm. So once it's positive, it's always positive. Yes, that's correct. So the um, the H. pylori um, antibody test, the blood test, the sero- serological test is not a great test for active H. pylori infection. So the blood test can tell you if you've been infected with H. pylori in the past, but it doesn't necessarily indicate an active uh, infection. So this, the test that you want to do to check if you have an active H. pylori infection is the breath test or the stool test uh, for, for H. pylori. The, the serological antibody test will only tell you if you had a previous or past infection. And even if you treated it. And even if you treat it, it will still be a positive uh, blood test, correct? Right. Because remember, 
Remember, Ron, the antibodies are basically your body's protection. So when we talk about things like chickenpox, for example, if you had chickenpox when you were younger, your body still has antibodies, meaning protection against chickenpox. So if we did a blood test for you and we tried to check to see if you've ever been exposed to chickenpox, we will find those antibodies and the blood test will say, yes, Ron is protected. It doesn't mean you have pox right now. It means that you did, you know, at some other point. So the same thing is true with H. pylori. If you've ever been exposed, the antibody test will be positive forever. But as Dr. Murakami mentioned, the antigen test, when we looked to see if there's actual H. pylori infection, that's only positive if you have the infection. Is that right? Correct. All right. I got it in my head, which means I got it from you. And, and now I've been infected with knowledge. Mm-hmm. And if your your stomach or your left upper quadrant uh, abdominal pain persists, I might, uh, you know, uh, consider that you might need what's called an upper endoscopy to actually look inside the stomach because you could have an ulcer, you could have a cause for that pain. So that might need to be looked at, you know, more carefully. And, you know, he's right. That whole regimen to treat the H. pylori, that's actually a pretty darn high dose of medication and that in itself can give people troubles with their stomach. Yes, that's correct. It usually goes away when you finish the medicine though. Yeah. And so if you still have it, Ron, you got to get it checked out. All right. We have another caller on the line. We have Tara on the phone from Honolulu. Tara, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tara Alder and I'm actually an internal cleansing specialist and health educator with Alderbrook Healing Arts here in Honolulu and in Eugene, Oregon. I've been working with board-certified gastroenterologists in Eugene, Oregon for the past 10 years, helping people to prepare for their colonoscopies naturally using colon hydrotherapy. So for people that are hesitant to drinking the prescriptions to prepare for their colonoscopy, they are given the alternative. And I'm wondering if that's something that your office would be willing to consider trying. Interesting. You know what, Tara? I've never heard of it. Colon hydrotherapy. Yeah, it's very much like the name implies. We're simply hydrating the colon with purified water. So you're putting water in it. Yeah, and and that loosens and softens the contents, and then the clients are able to expel the contents naturally, and it goes off into the city sewage. And through a process of repeated receiving of the purified water and then releasing the contents of the bowel, not only the water that we put in, but whatever gets loosened and softened, you're able to thoroughly cleanse the colon, and we have a 100% success rate in preparing clients for colonoscopy on the mainland. Interesting. So, like, instead of drinking it and having it go through your stomach and your intestines, you're kind of going from from the other side. Exactly, which is the most efficient route. You know, you I'm don't curious. And when you sure. yeah, need to go through the 23 feet of the small intestine. Yes, yes, we did say there was a lot of intestine, yes. So I'm curious about it, though. Like, when you talk about the hydrotherapy, and purely just for my own ignorance, so how many times, like when you said you repeat the procedure, meaning repeat the colon cleansing with water, um, how many times do you have to do it before the colon's completely clear? clients come in the night before their colonoscopy Uh and the morning of, and during each of those two sessions, they go through a repeated process of receiving and releasing. The course of the therapy usually takes 30 to 45 minutes to thoroughly cleanse the bowel. And just to make sure that we're 100% efficient, we do go ahead and repeat the process the morning of 
the colonoscopy. Interesting. And at this point, I've actually worked with thousands of clients from many different parts of the world, and historically, this practice has been used since 1500 B.C. And sure, sure. They talk about the, quote, high colonic and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, sure. Sure, yeah. we've, we've heard about the theory, and then I just never put it together with, hey, what if we did it before a colonoscopy? Interesting. Yeah, yeah you might check in. Dr. Wu is one of the leading gastroenterologists at the Eugene Gastroenterology Center in Eugene, Oregon, and he's been supporting the process because he has a number of clients that, would decline going through the colonoscopy because if they had reason. to do the regular prep. Sure. But given the choice of doing this natural preparation, they're able to go ahead and get their colonoscopies. And clients report other benefits in addition to just cleansing of the colon and preparation. They report that they, they have health benefits from it as well. Well, you've given me some homework to do, Tara. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, maybe uh, we can contact each other outside of this radio show, and sure. I can give you an educational experience, and you can see for yourself if, if it's something that you'll be willing to consider for your clients. Well, I'll be educated, but I don't necessarily want to clean out my colon just yet, Tara. Although it sounds like an attractive <laughs> offer, and I have not yet had someone offer to clean out my colon on this show, that's the first. <laughs> I'm just going to say I will be educated. I'm open to education, and when I'm 50, I'm open to colon hydration as well. Right. And I've got well, some years to go. Yay for me. But free educational information available on my website and a video showing colon hydrotherapy from the perspective of a gastroenterologist who is prepping his patient for the colonoscopy. So All right. go to my website. We're going to take a look. We'll have David get that from you, and we'll we'll uh, post it on our Facebook page so people can take a look at it. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Murakami. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about irritable bowel syndrome. And, and we've, we've just heard that there's new options for colonoscopy prep. So this is going to be really interesting because if we're not afraid of the colonoscopy anymore, think of what else we could do to make sure that the colon is healthy. Now, if you've got a question, you can join us, 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this break. Stay with us. When you're in Basque Country, you know you're going to be eating really well. We always say that, how do you celebrate anything? Eating. And if you want to shop for great food, Fred Potkin knows just where to go in Italy. Bologna, to me, has the best markets in Italy, and therefore the world. Guides to eating and drinking in Basque Country, culinary highlights of Italy, and tips on how to eat like a Parisian. It's on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Gibson, author of The Complete Guide to Sound Healing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how sound affects us physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tracy Murakami. She is a board-certified gastroenterologist at Queens Medical Center, and we are talking today about all things related to the colon. Now, right before the break, we heard from Tara Albert, and she was telling us about new ways to do colonoscopy prep. And, you know, 
If we can fix the prep, I think a lot more people would be willing to do the colonoscopy. However, we also need to figure out who really needs to do the colonoscopy. And I think there are certain things, some research being done right now to try and find out alternative methods of colon screening. There's Cologuard, which is like a fecal DNA test. There's the fecal immunoassay, which is a little more specific than our old hemocult, which is something that we do. There's the traditional colonoscopy, which involves various options for PrEP. And the whole reason we do this is to try and prevent colon cancer. Now, in general, Dr. Murakami, what are the ages in general for which we should be looking at colon screening? So starting from age 50 um, and up to age uh, 75. So the reason we do it in those age groups is because it's a common cancer, and people, if it's caught early, can potentially be cured. But it doesn't mean that if you're over 75, you're never going to get colon cancer. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the the benefit um, of colonoscopy goes down with the older age just because there's more complications, more chances of, of uh, uh, complications such as a perforation and things like that. And, and patients tend to be older, you know, tend to be sicker. So usually in older patients, usually um, it's not worth it really to undergo screening. But if a patient, like I've met some 80-year-olds who are very vibrant, exercising every day, for them, I mean, if their life expectancy is expected to be 10 years or more, I would say, Hey, let's go for it. Let's let's get the colon and make sure. But um, sure, it's very age dependent. I know right. you know. In my mother's case, she's seventy eight and she's been ill for the last eight years. So screening wasn't really something we were doing for her. But then she had weight loss and she had anemia and symptoms. So then she did the colonoscopy because of the risk of doing a procedure in somebody who's otherwise not healthy health wise. You know, I mean, so you got to right, be careful. Right. But you could be you could be eighty doing a colonoscopy if if you are generally very active have a really good thought of longevity, but also if you have a history of abnormalities. Correct. So, you right. know, screening well, is one thing. Diagnostic is another. Right, right. So if you're 80 and you have symptoms of new onset bleeding or weight loss, like you were saying, it would be prudent to get a colonoscopy to figure out what's going on. All right. So now we mentioned that the other possible thing you said, pain that could occur in the middle of the evening or middle of the night, and that that could be something that would be inflammatory bowel disease. A lot of people mix up inflammatory and irritable. What's the difference? So inflammatory bowel disease is um, a chronic inflammatory condition of the GI tract. So um it could be inflammation anywhere from the mouth to the rectum in the case of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis where it's inflammation um, or colitis that starts in the rectum and proceeds upwards and, and um, affects the colon or the large intestine. And so that is a, in actually inflammation involving the GI tract versus irritable bowel syndrome in which um, we there is no physical uh, organic uh, cause that we have identified thus far, although we do have um, some hypotheses about what could be causing uh, irritable bowel syndrome. I want a hypothesis. Tell me one of those. Yes. So um, some some people think that it has to do with maybe altered gut motility. So sometimes increased motility of the intestine causing uh, pain or spasms. Uh, some other people think that perhaps um, irritable bowel syndrome is a result of dysbiosis or um, sort of uh, altered gut gut. Uh, uh, bacteria. bacteria, right? Sure, you got all funky stuff flora. in there. Maybe mm -hmm. you took too many antibiotics. Maybe you have too many probiotics. But whatever is in there, 
shouldn't be in there for you because everybody has their own little bacteria that belongs in their colon. Right. And some people think that irritable bowel syndrome also has to do with alterations in the gut immunity. So 80% of your immune system is actually in your uh, intestines. 80% of your immune system is in your gut. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Next time you say you're making me sick, I'm nauseous because of you. I really could be because 80% of my immune system is in my gut. Right. Another okay. hypothesis is that um, perhaps irritable bowel syndrome is a result of visceral hypersensitivity. What that means is that um, just some people might be very sensitive to certain stimuli. For example, um, distension of the, the colon can cause, um, you know, increased pain in somebody, but in the same amount of distension might not cause pain in another person. Sure. And I think stress plays a huge role. In all of this, because when someone's under chronic stress, they release a lot of stress hormones and those stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, etc., affect the way the gut behaves. That's correct. There is a mind gut interaction. Absolutely. And if you have a lot of stress hormones, it could be affecting that immune system and that's 80 percent of it is in your gut. So it could be mind body. It could be physically body body. I mean, there's a whole whole thought that this is all related, that. We really are what we eat, which is just a very scary thought. Okay, I want to have Lindsay from Waikiki have a quick chance to ask us uh, a question, and then we're going to talk some more about about what's going on in our guts. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Let's talk about guts. Let's do it. Okay, I was calling about um, a personal experience with colon cancer. I know you are moving on to IBM, but... um, my mother found out when she was 50 um, that she had stage 4 colon cancer with um, zero uh, signs beforehand. And I'm 32, and I, I have not received a colonoscopy yet. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions for um, younger listeners um, who want a colonoscopy but um, aren't sure how to go about that. I've, I've heard that I need a um, general practitioner's referrals first or is there a simplified way to just go in and get one really good question Lindsay. because you know what we mentioned on average we do screening ages 50 to 75 but the reason we were very specific to say on average was because people who have a personal family history in a first degree relative of cancer that occurred at the age of 50 or less their recommendations for colon screening are a little different than everyone else's dr murakami what is the recommendation for people with a first-degree relative who had colon cancer in an advanced stage at the age of 50? So you should get screened about 10 years before the age of diagnosis of your mom. So that would be at age 40 for you. And so when somebody is concerned about their stomach and their colon and they're doing a screening colon test, they... You know, in this situation, Lindsay would go at the age of 40. Um, She would probably have to go through her regular doctor to get a referral. That's really more of an insurance thing. Some insurances require that you get a referral from from a primary care provider. Some don't. That's really up to the insurance company and your particular insurance to find out what their rules are. But when we talk about screening, we're not talking about diagnosis. So if Lindsay noticed blood, if she noticed that she had a lot of abdominal pain, rather than waiting until she's 40, she would probably want to check in to see her doctor, and they would help her to determine if there's any reason for her to check it out earlier. Correct. Okay, so I'm making this really specific distinction, Lindsay, because screening 
is one thing we do when somebody has no symptoms and diagnosis is what we do when they have symptoms. And that that is the crux of the situation with you wanting to have this checked out and your insurance company. So talk with your regular doc. That's the best place to start. And they will help you to navigate this somewhat complex world of medical insurance that'll help you to figure out what you do and how you can make sure that you're protected as much as possible. Okay, we've got another caller on the line. We have Carla on the line from Kona. Carla from Kona. Hello there. Hi there. What can we I've do for been, you? Um, I've been um, reading a lot about um, digestive stuff and um, met a lady who was passing out this uh, probiotic stuff. And I started making my own uh, sauerkraut with a cabbage and just sea salt and a little water. And then I started making pickles. And that takes, it takes about two days in Hawaii. You put the cabbage in with the salt in the water, and it just turns, if you put beets in with it, really shredded thin, it turns to this really sour, delicious, amazing thing that you can put on everything. You can put on everything. I mean, I, it's really good. It's very sour and tasty. And then I made some pickles, too. With some, um, I have one of those things called a mandolin that, you know, cuts things thin. And so uh, I've been making pickles. Oh, my God, they're so good. So this was your version of probiotics. Yes, and I've been eating the pickles every day, and um, it makes your stomach feel so much better, and it just makes you feel more normal. I mean, your body just acts more normal when you're eating this. I don't know why. It's just amazing, and it tastes so good. All right. Well, that's an interesting uh, way to sort of get us on the topic of probiotics. Because, you know, the conventional medicine world never really thought much about probiotics for a long time. And then all of a sudden, within the last couple of years, we've really recognized with the advent of significant infections, there's a particular one, Clostridium difficile or C. diff. We realize that, boy, every time we use antibiotics, we really are altering the normal bacteria in the colon. And by trying to restore that balance, that's adding probiotics, adding some healthy sources of natural bacteria that belong in your gut, people really do feel a lot better. And, you know, Dr. Tracy, you're young enough that you've you've been in the medical system when probiotics made sense. I remember in medical school, we heard probiotics and we were like, what are you talking about? It's antibiotics. That's all we know. But nowadays, this is mainstream. Right. I think um, people have to be careful, though, with probiotics because there's so many different products out there and they're not necessarily regulated by the FDA. So they're not considered um, they're considered to be like a supplement. So what about getting it from your food? Yeah. You know, like Carla's doing it through food. I Mm -hmm. love Greek yogurt. Mm -hmm. It always says probiotics. Then there's that Activia, you know, that commercial. I mean, if you can get it from natural food, I'm always a big fan of going all natural. Yes, yes, I agree. I think if if you try it and it you know you feel better on it, that's that's great. Uh, you can't argue with success. Um, but you know, for some people, taking a probiotic might not necessarily improve their symptoms. And I would say that we don't know yet what particular strain, how much of the strain uh, is beneficial. We don't have enough of that data or evidence yet. Um, but I I do uh, like probiotics. I do recommend it for patients. Um, but um, I would just caution to be careful a little bit with um, with what's out there. Well, and I would just say to people, just in general, if you're on antibiotics, that is not the time to take your probiotics because you just killed them with your antibiotics. I know that sounds simple and I know that sounds silly, 
But I've had so many patients come in and say, I started my probiotics when I took my antibiotics. And I said, you know, the best time to do those probiotics is after the antibiotics, because then you're restoring the bacteria, not just killing them with your antibiotics. So that's just a little side note. All right, we have a couple more minutes. We had a shy caller who really wanted to know something which kind of relates to our irritable bowel discussion. And they said, what causes gas and how can you make it go away? Any thoughts? So gas is produced by the foods that we eat. So they get digested and fermented by the bacteria in our intestines and and colon. And um, the bacteria actually are the ones that produce gas. And so um, what you can do to try to minimize gas production is, first of all, maybe try to eat foods that are less gas producing. For example, uh, we know that cauliflower, broccoli, beans, those kind of uh, vegetables are more gas producing um, and uh, things like lactose, perhaps, too, as well, could produce gas as well. So um, being cognizant or paying attention to maybe what types of foods uh, that you're eating that might be causing uh, gas or bloating uh, is a good way to start. I also recommend uh, my patients keep a journal, keep keep track of what foods you're eating and how they make you feel. Um, but uh, one, one way that could help with uh, gas or bloating is uh, some simple, maybe over-the-counter remedy called cymethic Bino, Gasex, sometimes that can help. Um, other times, uh, like trying a probiotic uh, might help um, uh, uh, by uh, letting your, you uh, take in more good bacteria that can help uh, uh, maybe la- less gas-producing bacteria um, in, in the colon. And the other thing is gas. It's better out than in. <laughs> I mean, I know. We're all going to know who did it, you know. But if you really have colon problems, don't try and keep it in because that could actually cause you to have other troubles. So better out than in, you know, if you got to go, just let her rip, you know, blame the dog, blame the person next to you, whatever you need to do, but make sure you're doing what's best for your body because it always feels better naturally when you're letting things expel than when you're trying to hold them in. That's just generally not for your whole entire field. I'll be honest, Tracy, let it get out. Literally yes. out rather yes. than in. <laughs> That's true. All right. So we, we talked a little bit about some of the new medications. We don't have a whole lot of time. But, you know, just in the last quick minute or so, there's a lot of medicines that people see on television for irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. Would your What would be your verdict on medications. Check and see your doctor. Make sure that's what the condition you have first. Correct. Yeah, because a lot of um, conditions can mimic irritable bowel syndrome, and you want to make sure that you don't have them. For example, as we talked about before, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, um, infections, other conditions can uh, cause symptoms of abdominal pain, gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation. So you want to make sure that you don't have any of those other conditions uh, first. Um, another thing, too, is that you know a lot of times patients uh, can respond to uh, medications to treat diarrhea and constipation before moving on to those more stronger prescription medications. So, all right, well that's good. Yeah. It's you know, when in doubt, check it out. 
talk with your doctor, talk to your gastroenterologist, make sure you get it evaluated. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. I learned a lot. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. And our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week on Monday right here on The Body Show. See you then. Thank you.